You're listening to Igniting Imagination, a podcast to spark the spirit within you from Wesleyan Investive and Texas Methodist Foundation. This season, we are sharing with you conversations with five spiritual entrepreneurs who were awarded the 2021 Tom Locke Innovative Leader Award from the Wesleyan Investive. For more information, visit award.wesleyaninvestive.org. Hi again, friends. I'm Lisa Greenwood here with my friend and co-host, Casper Turkile. So good to be with you again, Casper. Hi, Lisa. So we're concluding our conversations with the Locke Innovative Leader Award winners. Casper, any final observations so far about these conversations and our award winners? It's just, it's just so striking to me how these themes that you and I talk about all the time about what the future of the church looks like right. comes to life with these individual winners. And I mean, that makes sense, right? That's why we, that's why we invited them to, to accept this award. But just listening to these stories is helping me bring to life my imagination of, of what the future of the Wesleyan movement is. And that is exciting. Yes, yes. So if this is your first time listening in, you can hear more about the Lock Award on our first episode or check out our website. Those links are in our show notes. The short summary is these are amazing human beings who are indeed spiritual leaders. And I, I can't wait for you to meet each one of them. So today's conversation is with Emmanuel Andre, who is an attorney, a mentor, a restorative justice practitioner in Chicago, Illinois. He's the founder of Northside Transformative Law Center, which is a space where community members, families, and professionals come together to advocate for and accompany individuals who are navigating the criminal justice system. And instead of describing himself as a criminal defense lawyer, he describes himself as a community defense lawyer. And you'll see more about why he does that in the conversation. He's also the founder of the Circles and Ciphers Initiative, a hip-hop-infused restorative justice organization for young people impacted by violence. And it's connected with the United Church of Rogers Park, a United Methodist congregation. And the thing that strikes me so much that, that kept coming out in this conversation with Emmanuel was his willingness to step into vulnerability, to step into yeah. discomfort. And, you know, I, I mean, reading about him and learning about his story, it looks like such a, a, a beautiful picture and such a constant set of, you know, brave and, and imaginative steps that he's taken. But as he tells it, in each of those steps, he felt out of his depth. He felt like he was a stranger in the room. And I mean, I, I feel really challenged by that because that means it's not an excuse you know, right. to, to, to keep waiting until it gets comfortable because it's never going to get comfortable. And I just love that in the way he told it. So I also love how he, um, and I, I don't know the best way to say this, but sort of welcomes the stranger or among yeah. us or befriends the sinner, you know, it's, I, I name it in the podcast, but it's, it's very biblical, right? Mm. And one moment really captured me where he tells the story and, and I won't give it away, but there's a, there's a, a, a young man with a gun and, and he not only says you are welcome, he says, we need you. Mm. Oh my gosh. When do we ever do that with the person who is not mm-hmm. like us or who scares us a bit, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And that constant orientation towards listening, right? Yeah. He, he keeps creating spaces in which people can look at one another and hear one another's story. And that theme of walking with someone right yeah. through the most difficult moments of their life and when they're navigating, you know, the so-called justice system, 
it's it's um yeah talk about a vision for what the church can be i i think this is a convicting and inspiring conversation well the theme throughout is that the church is its best like if you listen to from from when Emmanuel came here from Haiti with his family all the way to today. It's a story about the church at its best. Yeah, it's a story of what the church can be and can become. So enjoy this conversation with Emmanuel Andre. So hi, Emmanuel. Thanks for joining us. I have so been looking forward to being with you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited and can't wait for this conversation. Great, great. Let's jump right in and talk about your story. And specifically, what are some of the significant events that has brought you to this place in your life? Sure. So uh, I guess I'm originally from Haiti. I I have to start there. I'm born of Haitian immigrants. And, And our journey in many ways starts there. We immigrated from Haiti in the early 80s when I was about five years old. Uh, our country was in the midst of a brutal dictatorship. And we the first place we came to, believe it or not, was Miami. And in Miami, we were able to get, you know, just sort of tons of support from friends and, and community members. Uh, but it was really from Miami that we moved to Harlem. So from Miami to Harlem and in, in Harlem. And the main reason in Harlem was really there was a United Methodist Church there that was there ready to take us in and ready to support us and has been absolutely phenomenal. So from Miami to Harlem, and even in Harlem, I just had a chance to speak to my dad a couple of days ago about that transition. And when we arrived in Harlem, it was our family. I come from a family of 10, eight siblings and and, and our two parents. And at the time we were being pressured, to be honest with you, my dad mentioned the idea of being pressured to send us back to Haiti so he can get more mm. established because the family had to be split up. So we were at mm. various friends' houses, hotels. There was just no space in New York City for a family of 10. No one would take us all in at the same time. But that's when the church happened, you know, that, well, the, specifically mm. the Methodist church. You know, my dad had a job at an interview in Harlem at a barbershop. He was there, barely spoke any English, but he knew how to cut hair. And, uh, and he just talks about Reverend James and how uh, Reverend James, who was a pastor at a Methodist church in Harlem, uh, regular barber wasn't there that day. And he just looked at my dad and said, hey, I want you to cut my hair. And my dad had to get someone to translate for him and everything. That haircut and that pastor is the reason we're here talking today in many ways. Wow. Uh, so anyway, so they, they ended up, you know, my dad had asked, he didn't want a tip or anything else like that. He just asked the Reverend, can you help us? And Reverend James said, bring all your family and come down to the church over 126th Street. I think it was on, uh, I think it was Madison Avenue at the time. Just just bring everybody. And, you know, my dad was staying in Jersey. He had some of us in in hotels just all over the place. And he just talks about that day. He'll never forget that day. Just making the phone calls and telling us that Sunday we, we all had to be dressed in our best outfit, and which barely had outfits, but we had to be dressed in our best to be able to make it. So, and, and we did, you know, and we, we found the way we all did. We couldn't even find a cab to fit 10 people. 
but we did. We, we made it there. And it was there that the church actually provided us our first home. So that was the first time we felt unified as a family, like literally mm-hmm. physically unified. Because before then, we all were staying at different places. And, and I think in many ways, that sort of defines almost my development in terms of my career and everything else. It just it seems at moments disjointed until I'm able to, to bring these different different spaces together, different spaces that I'm, that I'm in. I feel like I'm talking too much, so I'm going to stop there and, and let you ask whatever questions you, you feel. No, that's great. That's great. I love that. <laughs> Actually, I want you to say more about how that picture and that moment is sure. formative for you. It speaks to, for me, just sort of the power of the community and and not being able to stay where things are. Because at that time, we didn't even qualify for government assistance. We couldn't get government housing or anything like that. So, you know, so the church here, they went, they just said, okay, we're going to find a local landlord and we'll, we'll, put you, we'll put you all up. And it was a two-bedroom apartment. But I tell you, that, that, that was a home. That was a real home. It was warm. It, it was everything that we needed. Um, I hope no one's listening now that's going to write up the church for, <laughs> for, for, for putting us all in together. But, uh, but it was everything <laughs> that us as a family needed. And, and we were unified physically, but it did a lot to us sort of spiritually and emotionally, as you can imagine, as a child who's, what, five, six years old. Now you have all your siblings and you have your parents in one place. So even as you're going through this, whatever the tragedy and whatever the trauma is, if you're able to go it together, you can sort of bear it in, in a real way. So in terms of for me, what that's looked like, because I was raised in Harlem and because I was raised in Harlem, Jonah, mid to late 80s, early 90s, it had a profound impact on the way I see things, the way I see the world, um, the way I see sort of America's relationships with race, class, and gender. At that time, you know, we were in a deep, big war, actually, the war on drugs. And and I lived through that. And then it was... Um, you know, the super predators, right? And, and I think some of that has recently got some some old press, but but living through that and also seeing your friends and seeing the impact that it had on on families and communities, how it completely destroyed them, to be very frank mm-hmm. with you, and, and what incarceration it did to families and communities and that, it, again, it completely destroyed them. So for me, that's always had a profound impact. So here I am, I'm this, you know, Haitian kid living this and, and trying to pick up, trying to make sense of this world, trying to find my identity. Because I'm in Harlem, I'm, I'm Haitian and I don't really fit in, but I don't fit in the Haitian community because my, you know, they want me to wear ties and suits and stuff like that. So I don't fit in the Haitian community. And I'm, I just always felt like as, a, as an immigrant, to be honest with you, that's always stayed with me, this idea of, you know, you're constantly moving. So with that said, Believe it or not, my mother dreamed of me possibly becoming a pastor or doing something very important in the church. And you know, I guess the secret's out now. You know, a lot of the times she used to send us to Sunday school morning, me and my brother Pierre. Pierre, if you're listening, I have to tell it. We, we would go to the arcade and come back. And how was Sunday school? So, oh, mom, it was great. And uh <laughs> But we were able to feed off that because she only spoke, you know, Haitian Creole. And we would go to Sunday school in these uh, American churches. But I, I think her hope was not 
completely lost in, in those days in the arcade. And it wasn't that bad. It wasn't that many. Um, so, mom, if you listen, it really wasn't that many. But what it did do, though, again, in terms of just sort of the way I see the world, it really helped form that and helped frame that. So, for me, I wanted, I need, I knew I needed to get out of Harlem to be able to see. It's not even something you articulate. It's just something you feel. You're going through just losing friends your age to the prison system, to death. And you just felt like you you had to get out at least for a moment in time. And then also finding your way. It, it just always frame, okay, how do I find my way? What is it that I was here to do? I wasn't asking those questions, by the way. What's my purpose? Those are not the questions <laughs> I was asking at 17, 18, 19. Just more, I just felt like I had to get out. And, and when I went, when I went over to school, and even then, you know, even my college, First generation, first one in my family to have an opportunity to go away to school and don't know anything about scholarships or anything, but I will never, ever forget that $383 investment that the Methodist Church made in me and just say, hey, here's here's for books. When you're standing up there in front of the church, turning around and you're just, there's an accountability that happens, mm-hmm. you know, whether you know it or not. So no, I did not spend any of that on arcades or anything like that, but I took it seriously. <laughs> Yeah, I was a I was a city kid. That's that's all I knew. That was my identity. That was literally my identity. But I'll never forget the first time I was on a bus on the way to Binghamton and and seeing cows and horses. It was one of the first times I had like these weird flashbacks of just the woods and and just what was my childhood like in Haiti. And and things went well for me in Binghamton. It gave me an opportunity to really go away and breathe. And then going away and breathe, all I wanted was just answers and just answers as to how come so many of my friends who look like me are no longer here. You know, I was I was just going through a traumatic experience. Um, basically, one of our childhood friends who was almost like a family member, a cousin, had died. It was murdered my freshman year in, uh, in college. And I remember getting the news and I remember... You know, I, I've always written to him since then, but I, I remember just, okay, this would have to be my safe place for now. And, and this is how I'm going to have to figure it out. So mm-hmm. in looking for, that's all I wanted. I was really looking for answers, whatever that meant. And then in looking for answers, I wanted to go to law school. You know, After years of, of being out of school, but I, I really wanted to go specifically because I thought it gave me the tool to help <laughs> get a lot of my friends out of jail in prison. That's where I felt the most comfortable. So even going, my parents was excited because they thought I was going to go to become an immigration attorney and, and or, or go, you know, we knew no lawyers. We didn't know any attorneys and every attorney was rich from the TV uh, movies that we saw. So everyone thought I was going to be a corporate lawyer or something like that. But there was just something always deep inside of me that just made it you just feel these moments. It's almost like deja vu type. You know, you, you mm-hmm. just feel it. It's something you feel. It's something that's incredibly difficult to articulate. But I have these moments where, you, where you're where you doing something that you're like, okay, this, this is what I was put on this earth to do. I, mm-hmm. If things stop now, I, I did okay. But with all that said, you go into law school and you're like, okay, I'm, I'm an immigrant again because most of my law school friends, a lot of them are off to... Uh, big corporations or, or these six-figure salaries. And even in a nonprofit world, it looks very, very different. It's, it's, it's a whole different way of being, way of practicing law. Well, and, I, I want to ask you about that, Emmanuel, sure. because you, 
you, you train as a lawyer, you, you create your own practice, and you enter a field that commonly is known as criminal defense. But here you come as a newcomer and you say, no, we're not going to use that language. This is about community defense, right? You, you mentioned you want to be protecting and, and helping people you grew up with and other folks like them. You, you have this ability of, of finding language, of interrupting the way things are usually done and helping everyone see that there's a better way. And I, I, not just in, in the legal context, you know, in the work beyond that as well, because you're always putting together that piece of justice with healing, because without one, we can't have the other. And, and I, I want to hear how you think about what is justice and how does, it, how does it pair with healing? How do those two things come together kind of at a philosophical level, but then also really in a practical way? when you're dealing, you know, when you're responding to a situation where there's been violence, for example, how, how, how do you approach something like that? Even this concept of criminal defense, and, and again, I'm an outsider. If, if I call myself a community defender in front of defense attorneys, they look at me and they roll their eyes. And, and right. I start talking about the, the need for healing when people roll their eyes as if those are not, uh, those are incompatible. But, but for me, the idea of justice is really one that, for me, it, it feels as if something that, that is foundational pieces are really faith-based. And, and also this idea around restoration, healing, coming back to form, coming back to our, our normal self, almost like this idea of, in a weird way, I almost think of children and babies. They're, they're literally born perfect in a weird way, but they can't mm. move around the world, you know, but but the thinking and everything is if we always talk about babies and children as being pure. So it, it's it's that concept of going back to its natural state. And mm-hmm. injustice is just sort of, uh, it, it's this tear that's happened. So, so for me, when I look at it like that, therefore justice, fundamental to that is, is healing. And what does that mm-hmm. look like? And what responsibility do I have and again, it's not just as an attorney, but just as a community member around healing and around broken relationships or conflicts. Uh, so in the work that I do as a defense attorney, whether I'm re- representing a young person who's been accused of doing something that's absolutely horrible, part of it is always, for me, it's, okay, what's, you know, what is it that this person wants and what, the, what is it that this person needs? And so the relationship is so important. It's about relationships not transactions. Um, so even for me, the practice of the law is one that, that's completely relational mm. um, and very important. And even as you say it now, it's something I'm from reflecting on right now because I'm I'm talking to you from I'm in Chicago right now, effectively, I mean, excuse me, affectionately called the North Pole. I'm in an area called <laughs> Rogers Park. But our city right now is going through a lot. 13-year-old child, Adam Toledo, was was murdered. Mm-hmm. And you can feel the pain. And part of the pain is this is just a reoccurring, reoccurring thing. And part of the pain is lots of people of color feel as if, but yeah. for the videos, we wouldn't even be talking about this. And and how the narratives, there's like these fights for the narratives. Okay, whether, did he add a gun and would that justify it and everything else like that? No, when I see something like that, it, it's, especially as myself, as someone who, who's a father of a teenager, I think it breaks everyone's heart. But then when you think about even some parts of the story that 
a 13-year-old was going to a funeral. And mm. one of the most difficult things I do in, in my job and my role is when I go to funerals. And the reason I'm saying that is because the funerals I go to, unfortunately, are not 70, 80, 90-year-old people who just had their time and, and die of natural causes. I can't tell you the amount of funerals I've been to people who've died of gun violence. Mm-hmm. And so for me, again, and, and that concept of, of justice and healing, the question becomes, okay, what is it needed and what's the responsibility on all of us as a community to start to address some of that? Mm-hmm. I cannot tell you how painful it is when you go to a funeral for a 16, 17, 18, 19-year-old. It's not just the potential that you see, but it's the pain and all of the other 15, 16, 17, 18-year-olds there. And that is is something I cannot articulate. And that's something I take. It's one of those moments where it's just like, okay, I have, you know, we have a responsibility. And what does that look like? And what does getting help look like? What does getting healing help look like? Versus what we're doing now, which is, you know, having these arguments about uh, was there a gun? Wasn't there a gun? But, but just sort of what is you know what does healing look like? And, and it's and it's something that's reoccurring for all of us though because it's bringing back those issues of racial trauma that you know, that have deep deep histories in this country that we continue to struggle in figuring out how to reckon with. Uh, and I'm, again, I say this country. I'm it's all over. It's whether as a defense attorney. It has deep-seated roots in my practice, in the way I do things, in the courtrooms I walk in and out of. It has deep-seated roots in the church, for me at least, mm-hmm. you know, the churches I've been into. You know, I, I was just saying this the other day, one of the best things I think I've ever, ever done, one of those moments I had, right, one of those days of groupings was a couple of weeks ago, you know, we're in the middle of COVID and everything's happening and we're in this beautiful church over on Morris and Ashland, and a, just a very beautiful sanctuary, very, very peaceful in so many ways. And, and of course, everyone's attending church via Zoom. And I have a young person who I'd you know, been working with who was really a friend, to be very frank with you. And the church wanted to interview him and to talk about this work we're doing with Circles and Ciphers. And me and this young person, we had an opportunity actually to be in the sanctuary. We're sitting in a sanctuary and everybody's looking in and it's just me, him, and the pastor, which if you knew the history of it, especially about this young person's relationship with the church, you know, some people would say it's even blasphemous for, for him to be there with a defense attorney at that, you know, that's <laughs> sort of what some, some people call it. But it felt like it was the exact thing that needed to be. Everybody not being able to physically being into the, in the church, but having to look out and then this person being centered. So, but again, no, uh, you know, what is needed to be able to reconcile some of, you know, some of those deep seated roots of race, uh, gender, uh, sexual identity issues that, that plagues us as a country. Mm-hmm. It's very biblical, actually. I mean, even as you describe it, I mean, the very people who are called unclean, Christ calls mm-hmm beloved and cherished and mm. reaches out to. So I love that. Thank you. I'm going to use that piece for my mom. I'm going to let her hear that one. Yeah. Mom, she said it's very <laughs> biblical. So, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. So I'm listening to you talk about all the pain and the deep wounds in individuals and the community. And, and one of the things that strikes me about what you do is that you're leaning into the pain. As hard as that is, you're not walking away from it or turning turning away from it. You're leaning into it. You're seeing it and naming it and you're and you're facing it. And and so what I would love to hear you talk about is is how you do that. I mean, how do you personally take each step each day toward the pain? Uh, that's a great question. I I've it's something I've never sat with. Uh, it, I want to say it's natural, but it's not. It's uncomfortable. It's mm-hmm. scary. I'd be lying to tell you if it's natural. You know? I think, but I do think some of the things that lead me there is sort of almost like that concept of restorative justice. But for me, restorative justice is so much, it's not just about a program or anything. It's a philosophy. It's a way of being. And it's a way... What would I want for my own child? What would I want for my own mother? What would I want for my own dad? No matter what mm-hmm. the issue is. And a lot of times it's it's love. It's this idea of unconditional love. Somebody willing to walk with. And that's what it is for me. I'm going to walk with you. It's scary. You know, it's, there's plenty of scary moments. It's uh, And I think the, the biggest challenge of that is actually to your point, Lisa, about you do get exposed to that pain and it is painful. You know, I mentioned to you amount of funerals I've been to. I can't tell you the amount of pain. You feel it, you know, and doing this work and, and practicing. If I'm going, whether it's going to a trial or going to a funeral, after each of those events, I walk out very, very different. Physically even, you know, I, I've just noticed, you know, my kids will tell you my hairline continues to go back. And I think it's because of all that, because of all that pain. But then you do have moments though where, I'll give you an example. Uh, you know, this is about a couple of years ago now where I sit in over on Morrison Ashland. Young person who, who gets access to this church pretty regularly because of some of the programming we do happened to be outside. And I was able to see and walk to the store and and he's standing there and he has a strange look in his face and I'm, you know, I'm greeting him. And then he says, Mr. Emmanuel, don't look now, but you see this, this guy coming behind us. And I say, yeah, I see him. He says he has a gun and, and you know, I'm scared. And you know, what do you do with that? <laughs> There's no, you, you didn't learn that in the law books. And I definitely didn't learn what to do with that at the church either. I didn't have time to, to say a prayer or, or anything, but it was, the only thing that I could have offered was when I turned around and looked at that other young person really in his eyes and, and just said, hey, there's space here for you. We need you. We need you. There's space here for you. You love. Mm-hmm. And gave him a card. And that's it. But you just saw just how you saw how awkward it was, first of all. I mean, and, and look, I, in full disclosure, I, I had a suit and a tie on. Yeah. To almost protect myself, because that brings some privilege, right? That brings some level of privilege. But you can feel that moment of just, okay, there, there's something different here. And, and and then how do you debrief from that? And by the way, these are 
what I would deem children, mm -hmm. 17, 18. Now, what we do with that, all we do is we try to incarcerate our way out and not realizing what we're doing is furthering, pe keeping people further away from the village and, and from the communities. And what you've done is you have invited people into that village. I mean, with, with Circles and Ciphers, what you're doing is bring those people into relationship with each other. You're building relationships intergenerationally. But what I love so much about the way that you tell the story, because it's easy from the outside to like paint this picture of here is this excellently created program and here is our healing philosophy and you know here are our partners. But the way that you tell the story is that it started by just inviting you know young people to come together and listen to music together, to have some pizza, to, to, to listen to music together, talk about music. And, and I think sometimes, you know, I can imagine as a religious professional, right, we, we overthink things when actually all it takes is an invitation like that, saying, how are you doing? Want to, you know, yeah. do you want to come join us to listen, listen to some hip hop and talk about it? And I mean, it, am, am I telling that correctly? Does that feel true to what it was really like? Or how, 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 would, you, how would you tell that story of how this incredible program started. Yeah, I, I think you do a good job of telling it. I, I think two things I'd add is just willingness to be uncomfortable and be vulnerable. Mm. Being uncomfortable and being vulnerable. I would love to tell you that I was a pretty hip guy and all hip to all the great hip hop and everything else. And I had pizza, right? Hip hop and pizza. All the, all, everybody would want to come and hang out and hear that. But no, it, it wasn't like that, you know. We the truth is, I was pretty lonely in Rogers Park, and and my wife kicked me out and said, "You got to go do something, you know. We're not gonna mope around about missing New York City." And and I ended up going to a Peace Circle training, and, and and there I met, you know, I met someone, Ethan Ethan Hucker, and not just him, but Miriam Kaba, who's just a phenomenal, brilliant human being. I don't even want to put a title on her because I will minimize what she does. This phenomenal human being who put together this space, you know, for us to learn what it means to be in relationship with each other. And then it's through that space, we started discussing what would it look like, you know, as, as a response to the community's push to push out some of the young people who they felt were the cause of everything wrong in a community, what would it look like for us to just be in relationship with them and over music, you know? And there was, and I said, uncomfortable. There's lots of the music that I was uncomfortable with that I could barely, I, I couldn't even hear it. So we had to print out the lyrics. Everyone was like, oh, that's brilliant. And you could get to talk through the lyrics and break them down. No, actually, part of it was we just couldn't understand what was being said. Um, but but there is something that happens when you're willing to be uncomfortable and stay in relationship with. It's that yeah. idea of walking with it continues to happen. So it wasn't for me to be judgmental and be, but it was just really just to be there and listen and, and listen to st sh stories being shared and also vice versa. And, and that's the vice versa piece, the, the vulnerability piece. I don't think it can't be done in this way as you're being a complete outsider coming in to extract stories, right? This okay. excavation of stories. No, it's it's really you're going in to share just as much and, and share your your tragedies, your losses, and and what it meant to me, sort of as on my own journey to mm. identity and and where mm. I was at that time. So that was always very very critical for me. 
And it started out as a space where it was just pizza and Miriam Kaba rented out a place for us to be in. But then even how we ended up in the church was just quite amazing. You know, the deacon just approached me one day and he knew, he said, hey, that sounds very interesting. Why don't you come and, and, and do it here? And, and our first space was this very, very little space where they had Bible study for, for kids. I mean, it was, should have saw the chairs. The chairs were tiny. So when, <laughs> when, at that time, it was just young men. When the guys would come in, mind you, at that time, people are like 14 through 21. And they're looking at these tiny chairs and we're forced to, to be in these little chairs. But I think in many ways, it was representative of what was happening uh, to us at that time, sort of that metamorphosis happening. But I really do want to thank our deacon and our pastor for allowing us to play the music and <laughs> and work through some of those challenges, uh, which you know they have more stories than I do. Let's just say they really walk. <laughs> but being uncomfortable and being vulnerable, and, and I want to thank them for that. They were definitely uncomfortable and, and, and vulnerable at times. So, Manuel, I'd love to hear more about this partnership with the church and how you ended up with your law practice, of all things, in the church, as well as the Circles and Ciphers. So, you said they invited the Circles and Ciphers in. So, if you can talk about that, but but also your practice is there now. Talk about the partnership with the church. Yeah, great question. I, I, I wish I could share this whole strategic plan I had or anything like that, <laughs> It, it was nothing like that, although in many ways it's consistent as I think back to my family and, and the role the church had. They were just there at the right moment in so many ways and, and was willing to take me as I was, just like they were willing to take my family as I was, as they were mm-hmm. at the time. So it was first circles and ciphers. I mean, at first, even the church that we're in, when I moved to Rogers Park, I had just been bouncing around checking out churches on Sundays. And this one just felt right. It literally just, it just felt right. But after, you know, Circles and Ciphers, once that space came in and it grew because now we're doing weekly programming and several different programming and, and the church offered us uh, just a more consistent space now in the basement. So we went from a small backspace in the sanctuary to actually the basement. And that's when a lot of them, I, I felt even more magic happened. Uh, but even while that's happening, again, going back to my family, how I felt like we were in different places at different times, right? Somebody's in Jersey, someone's in a hotel, someone's in another uh, friend's home. So that's how I felt like my life was. I'd be at the church with circles and ciphers. I, I would be in courthouses throughout the Chicagoland area, and I'd have an office downtown. Or I'd had an office in an area called Skokie um, in terms of my law practice. So if I needed to see a client or something like that, I was running to my offices. And everyone always laughed at me because I always had all these bags. I always had at least two bags. I always had a briefcase and probably a book bag. And then one day, uh, the pastor, I'll never forget this, Pastor Katiana just approached me and said, you know, Emmanuel, you look very tired. Why don't you, why don't you just take a room upstairs? Why don't you consider just doing that, moving your practice in there. And then I had just this pause and this look at pastor just, because we never talked about the depth of my practice, you know, in terms of, like, I, I do defense work and I, and I represent everybody, anybody, no matter. And, and it is from this space, though, it is from sort of my philosophy and my faith. And 
And I said, Pastor, are you sure? She said, absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, there's many moments now, you know, one of my first clients, when I said, hey, um, this is my address, they said, we can't find your address. And I said, well, I'm located in a church. And they said, well, isn't that blasphemous for a criminal defense attorney to be in a church? And it probably is, but luckily I can, I see myself as a community defender and I don't think it's blasphemous for that, that that happened. Or or even if it is, I think the more reason we need to be in a church. Mm-hmm. So there's oftentimes, I, all I can do is just walk to the sanctuary. And there's just this power and this beauty of that. The idea of physical locations mean a lot to me and, and the church serving as that physical foundation means a lot to me. In addition to, of course, the, the concept of the church being sort of this spiritual foundation too, this faith-based foundation. I just think about the role of, of the church and other healing advocates in all the funerals that I've been to and, and how I feel like that needs to be you know, expanded or just reimagined, I think, as we sit here in 2021 yeah. with COVID, about to hopefully soon to be post-COVID. But uh, I, I think it's time that we continue to reimagine our roles yes. and our spaces, who we're willing to let in. You said, well, we, you know, we might need the church, but I would say the church really needs you, Emmanuel, yeah. and the young people that you're serving. And so it is, uh, it is far from a one-way relationship. You know that, but I just want to make sure we say that out loud. because I, No, I, 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 I appreciate that. I appreciate that. I always think about that quote that, you know, it takes a village. That was popularized, right? It takes a village. It takes a village to raise a child. And, but the other side of it is that child that's not in that village will, will, will burn it down to feel its warmth. That's right. And what can we do to help everyone feel the warmth? of the village. Yes. And, and sometimes it's just as basic as creating that physical space. Just come in. Mm-hmm. Nothing's mm-hmm. needed. You don't need to convert. You don't need to say you're a believer. You don't need to say anything. You don't have to dress up the way I had to dress up. It's just come in. Love is Amen. here. So, so Manuel, I want to I want to ask you three rapid fire questions. Not that they're easier to respond to, but I'm going <laughs> to ask for a short and snappy answer. The first of which is if you think back to that young man you know, in New York, arriving on that Sunday morning at the church, what do you wish he had known that you know now? What do you, what do you wish you had known when you were just starting out? I wish I would have known that it's okay not to know. Mm-hmm. I, I wish I would have known it's okay not to know and just, and the importance of history. That's what I wish, just the importance of, of history to help mm. guide and, and also help because for that young man it was lo- it's lonely it's very very lonely very very because you're always the immigrant but when you understand history then you understand that you walk with ancestors mm-hmm. and you're always walking in every room with a group of people who came before you who we don't know we don't see so anyway, so that, that's what I wish, just for all mm. those lonely nights. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is okay. I appreciate that. Walk into a room, record podcasts with them. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Emmanuel, your work has intersected with different church leaders. Um, you know, you've, you've been connected to different congregations. When you think about your work, your, your ministry, if I can use that word, what's the thing you wish leaders in the church understood? 
What do you wish that they knew? I feel like I, I just wish more leaders would welcome change and be comfortable in being uncomfortable mm-hmm. and vulnerable. Welcome mm-hmm. change, comfortable in being uncomfortable and vulnerable, and just that, you know, our, our congregations look very different than those who showed up. Now it's a little bit different. Those who show up on Zoom or, or on Sunday or Saturday or whatever, whoever's in that physical building. And, and just there's a privilege there for those who showed up. And, and how do we just be in relationship with those who are not? Mm. Yeah, I, I think for me, so for me for a long time, yeah, I, I thought you church had to look a certain way. And, but every time in, in sort of when I got stuck in my own journey, I, as I reflect back, the church was there. So. Mm. Final question for you, Emmanuel. You mentioned your mother is particularly proud of you in, in, in this moment, <laughs> which I love so much. Would you tell us, you know, as you've claimed this, this Wesleyan tradition, as, as you've been honored uh, with this award, can you tell us what is at the very heart of the Wesleyan tradition for you? What's, what's the essence of Wesleyanism for you? I'm trying to tell you in one word. I wasn't prepared for this question. Can I, can I give you a story? Of course and then you I'll can. that one yes. word, just really brief, because you said my mother. So we're in Harlem. We're on 112th Street and St. Nicholas Avenue. This was the first apartment we moved to after our two-bedroom apartment. This was uh, four bedrooms, but it was... What some people would describe today as a quote-unquote slum landlord. I don't like those words, but that's what it'd be described. Mm. And so we're on the sixth floor, top floor, still a bunch of us. At this time, we moved up. It's four bedrooms. My mom brings in our cousin from Haiti. So now it's 11 of us. And we're, we're just getting by, if, if you want to even call that. But I will never forget, we had a neighbor on the fourth floor. And there was a single mom, and she had two children, two boys, Fadu and Joseph. Fadu is now with the, has since passed on. But I'll never forget this. There wasn't a day that went by where that family didn't have what they needed if, with respect to food or anything like that. Because my mother was always, always willing to share and always just willing to send it down. Mm. Just send it down. It did. It didn't matter. So I'll call myself out, and Pierre, I'm gonna call you out too. You know, we used to complain, right? We're growing boys, and there was almost never any leftovers. First of all, there was almost never leftovers. You could, the fridge was empty, and we'd be like, "Where would she find this stuff to send it?" Like we'd we'd be upset. Like we're hungry. Where would you find this stuff? I didn't see it now, but. She was, there was something that she was instilling in us, uh, in me, in my, that became sort of our essence, part of our essence. And, and I think it's whatever it is that she was doing then, I, that's what I think about that mm. Wesleyan tradition of just walking with mm. and being, that's it. You don't need to come to church every day. You, no, you're just walking with. And being there. And that's what I've always appreciated. 
So unfortunately, that's not. I said. I said. I promised one word, but I. <laughs> I preferred. I preferred the story. I appreciate it. Walking with, yeah. I was what an incredible woman. I mean, wow, incredible. Yeah, it's beautiful. So, Manuel, we want to end with a blessing of you. So, Thank you. receive these words, Emmanuel. We give thanks to God for you for the way that you embody unconditional love. The kind of love that doesn't look past the messy and ugly places, but sees them fully and loves anyway. Thank you for the ways you see the beauty deep down. I mean, really see. And then help us all to see and name that beauty. In your own unassuming way, you are weaving a fabric of love and it is making all the difference. Today, we give thanks to God for you. And we pray God's blessing on you and your family, the one that shaped you and the one that walks beside you every day, that you may know with all assurance that you are not alone. May the God of unconditional love fill you with courage to take the next faithful step when the way is uncertain. By the grace of God, may it be so. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Emmanuel. Thank you for your spirit and for spending this time with us. It's been such a gift. Thank you again. Thank you very much. I found my word. Is it too late? It might be too late, but I want to put it out there because I don't want to walk ahead. away with it. It's <laughs> not for me. Unconditional. That's my word. There it is. May it be so. <laughs> Igniting Imagination is a production of the leadership ministry team at Wesleyan Investive and Texas Methodist Foundation with excellent editing support from Truthwork Media. The beautiful music in our episode is from Mark Miller. For more information about Mark, visit his website at markamillermusic.com and find his music on YouTube. Make sure to view our show notes and website for more information about our guests and how you can follow them. I'm Blair Thompson-White, and from all of us at Leadership Ministry, Thanks for listening.